Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 18 is where we'll pick up. And David numbered the people who were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. Then David sent out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab. Literally, it means to be in the hand of Joab or under his command. The third under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother. One-third under the hand of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I also will surely go out with you myself. Noting that this is where David got in trouble before, is that he stayed back when he should have been out leading the armies. So he is doing the opposite of what got him into trouble, which I think is a good instinct. Um, but he's not consulting the Lord on this. And the people answer in verse 3, You shall not go out, for if we flee away, they will not care about us. Nor if half of us die, they will care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us now, and you are now more help to us in the city. So the people give him this kind of pushback against his instinctual, I'm going to go out and lead the army this time. And David's responding to that is where we start off in chapter 8. So we're in the middle of a larger narrative. And that narrative started with, towards the end of David's kingship, he gets in trouble with Bathsheba. That trouble turns into lying, it turns into murder. It turns into adultery, um, and David is suffering the consequences of that sin from the start. So he's preparing three different war companies, and these people are going to protect David. So all these people that left when his son Absalom rebels, these are people that are leaving Jerusalem with and loyal to David, even though the people of Israel are against David and have left him, which means the elders of the different tribes and some of David's closest counselors have... uh, created a civil war in the house of Israel. So this is all a follow-up to that. This is the inevitable war that comes from that division. There are tons of ways to parallel this to the church, to the messianic kind of passages. Um, I'm sure you'll think of a, a ton as we go, but if you think of this as a giant church split, then we see different personalities and characters that are part of that. And in the next two chapters, we're going to end the split and we're going to reunite the nation. So you see how that can happen. So captains of thousands, that's interesting because there were hundreds that left Jerusalem, but now we have thousands. How did that happen? And at the end of 17, remember uh, Ahithophel and Hushai give Absalom different advice? And Absalom follows the advice of Hushai, who's an agent of David. This is great novel writing. What Hushai did is he bought David time. Because I think when this all happened, it happened really quick. So as that time has passed, when it says captains of thousands, David's forces have grown as more and more people seem to have joined him. So David has sat to the side before. He's not going to do it this time. The people say, don't go out. And they give three reasons. You're a target. If we all die, there's still going to be a battle going on. And then maybe if we die, you can then be the plan B. 
right? So the war will go on. In essence, Absalom's made it about Absalom and David. It's not about the people necessarily. I also like to note Ittai the Gittite is back. He was with us in chapter 15, a newcomer to the following of the king. And this newcomer chose to be loyal to David instead of going other directions. So David gets wise to the counsel of his people, and he sits back and relaxes in verse 4. Then the king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate, and all the people went out by the hundreds and thousands. David shows wisdom in hearing the people. And I think this is a real good indicator of leadership in the church. Leadership in the church is supposed to be Jesus running the body. So when you have a human pastor in leadership roles in the church that doesn't listen to the body, that can be a problem. It can also be a problem when the whole body wants to go into sin and the pastor needs to say, no, we're not going there. But this is something where this isn't a decision of sin or not sin. It's whether or not David should be in front of the army. And in the flesh, David's thinking, okay, if I don't want to sin again, I should just be in front of the army. But they're saying, we need you to stay back. So notice that he doesn't go back to his bedroom in verse 4. He goes back to the gate. So if you're not out leading the army, you should at least be in the gate judging the people. This is the spot he abandoned to Absalom at the beginning of this whole affair. So David assuming his role as leader and being where the people want him to be is actually kind of an indicator of that he's, he's in wisdom at this point. So they go out by the hundreds and by the thousands. Again, the army has grown. These are thousands of people willing to go out and die for their king, right? The armies of God move forward. Then verse 5, now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captain's orders concerning Absalom. This is important because the dealing gently piece. Essentially, David stands in the gate and tells all the troops as they walk by, please don't kill my son. Be gentle with him. Don't take him out. Don't torture him. And that's kind of, honestly, David's a dad, and he doesn't want his son to be killed because his son's young and dumb. And young and dumb isn't punishable by death. So I think David's hope is that he doesn't die doing all this, um, that he's just brought back and maybe as a young man has a chance to grow up and become wiser. So David knows what's going on fully, and Absalom is just kind of going at this all willy-nilly, and he's following bad advice, um, and he wants him to be treated gently. And all the people heard. This is important because as we go through the chapter, there's going to be people that heard but ignore David. So his authority isn't necessarily being minded. Verse 6, so the people went out into the field of battle against Israel. Notice that the people are the people that side with David in verse 6, and Israel is all the people that rebelled against David. So the author has been pretty consistent as naming the two sides, the people or Israel. And the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. That's interesting. The people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David, and a great slaughter of 20,000 took place that day. For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. So to have a battle in the woods says that something happened before. Battles in the ancient world always happened on the plains. Out in the open, you'd line up like a chessboard, one side on each side of the field, and you'd go at each other, and the stronger side wins. So for a battle to happen in the woods, there had to be a few things that happened. Maybe David's veteran army, because he has the veteran soldiers with him, maybe they set it up to where Absalom had to attack them in the woods, which would be an advantage for the smaller force. 
because you could make the most of your men. Or they matched up and quickly the, the people with David broke the lines of the people with Israel and they scattered and started running willy-nilly into the woods. So clearly this is a clue of either David picking the battleground or David's troops winning and these people just running hoblong into the woods to get away from the fight. Big difference as to the two sides or the two how this came out. So it's presented in these verses as a total rout, like David's soldiers won, they meet in the field, and they got people running. And then we get this line that I love, and so did J.R.R. Tolkien, the woods devoured. Now, I don't even need to make the connection, but we're talking about ants, right? These are ants eating people and doing that. Or other possible explanations is that in the mountains of Ephraim, there are cliffs, ravines. It's really rugged territory. So if you're running away from a battle and you go headlong over a cliff or hit a ravine or twist an ankle on a rock, that could kind of end you right there. So the soldiers of David's men would come up after them and find people with twisted ankles and just end them. And then they would say the, the woods devoured these people. Um, so it could be that. Here's another theory. The word devour there in the Hebrew is actually to eat or to consume something by mouth into belly. So it's either really colorful language or a metaphor, or they're talking about wild animals that would be in the woods. And I think that's kind of interesting. This is the mountains of Ephraim, remember, weren't highly settled at this time. So they'd be kind of like going out to the Rocky Mountains, only not with snow caps on them. So this stretch of land uh, would have uh, really, simply speaking, the population in this area is just not there. In fact, the population of the world, if you just look at growth rates on the planet, uh, it, it, it took thousands of years to hit the first billion people on the planet. It took 8,000 years to hit the second billion. It took less than 1,000 years to hit 4 billion. And then it's taking 100 years to hit the next billion. And right now we're looking at a billion people on the planet every 20 to 30 years. So when you look at basic human growth rates, if you just dial that backwards, at the time of David, there's probably only about 2 million people on the planet, less than there are in the Twin Cities. Right, so you and that's you know assuming just a straight growth rate going backwards. So when you look at these parts of the world, animals would outnumber humans easily in wild parts of the territory. It's why in the Bible we see references to bears and lions, but no tigers. Oh my! Um, but animals would definitely wilder territories in the ancient world were dominated by animals. So if I go running hoblong through a forest that is overpopulated by bears and lions versus humans, I'm likely going to hit one of those animals at some point. So when it says they were consumed or devoured that day, that that could likely be what they're talking about. Or, frankly, option number four is there were actual ants and the trees ate the people. Um, and I'm, you know, that's just between you and me. I'm thinking it might be ants eating people. But, and that would be a miracle, clearly. I understand that. Um, so the notable part here is that the author is trying to tell us that the advantage in the battle was won more by the Lord and by the countryside than it was by battle on the field of battle. So the people that were with Israel broke pretty quickly, and it wasn't really a proper battle. So this in, probably encouraged David's men. They're really excited, and then we get to one of the most comical images in the Bible. Absalom. Remember Absalom was a handsome man. He was a good-looking man. He was a, EQ, or a GQ model. He had big hair. 
Mm. Big hair, so big that once a year when he cut it, he, we would cut, he would cut it off and they would weigh it on a scale. You gotta have really handsome hair for people to even wanna weigh your hair at the other end of it. Like that seems like an odd instinct, but they would. And it would come out to what was it, 200 shekels? Yep. yep. Which in our world is two to three pounds of hair. So he had thick, robust, shiny, beautiful hair. He'd walk down the street and the women would swoon at his hair. So this is the Absalom we're talking about, riding into battle on his mule, right? And so the, the mount is not as beautiful as his hair. In fact, his hair was probably bigger than the head of the mule. So you've got this image of Absalom, filled with some pride, met the servants of David, and Absalom rode on a mule. And that, by the way, um, historicity-wise, or when we're looking at historical evidence, horses weren't really used in battle until a certain time in history. So the fact that the Bible records the general of the army riding on a mule actually dates this accurately where the Bible says David happened in history. So it's just one of those little tidbits because you definitely wouldn't put your general on a mule if you had heard of horses. Like this is not the most prominent spot to sit. But the mule goes under a thick bough of the terebinth tree and his head catches in the terebinth. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth. And the mule which was under him went on because this is what mules do. So there's, there's Absalom hanging by his beautiful head. It says his head was caught in the terebinth. That's kind of graphic. Most people read that and they, are, they associate it with the hair because the hair was mentioned earlier in 2 Samuel. And so we're supposed to make the connection that his hair got caught in the branches literally enough to where he's hanging above the ground between heaven and earth. So take that in for a bit. This is a man of pride who is now helplessly hanging from a tree by his hair. Not the most dignified of positions. So he gets caught with his, uh, his hair down, so to speak. Or you could argue the Ents got him. I'm still, I'm still big on the Ent idea. So Mr. Hare, known by his hair, is now hanging by the very thing that gave him so much pride. And the mule keeps walking. The, the glory of riding on a mule just kept going without him. I love that. Um, we know that God sometimes works through animals because remember Balaam's donkey actually gets used to speak for God? So I have an instinct that God kind of came in and kind of like told the mule to keep going, right? And there's some influence there. But the terebinth tree, uh, just on a side note, this isn't the first time terebinth trees have been mentioned in the Bible. They have often been mentioned in association with pagan worship. So it's like he's riding through territory that is against God in the form of worship that it is, and he's going there. But then you have other images of terebinth trees. Deuteronomy 11.30, Are they not on the other side of the Jordan towards the setting sun in the land of the Canaanites who dwell in the plain opposite Gilgal? That's where this battle would have started, right next to Ephraim, beside the terebinth trees of Morah. So if you take the terebinth trees and associate where Absalom's hanging right now, we have a geographical location where a lot of really interesting things happened. First thing, Abraham, when he's wandering through the wilderness, he dwells by the terebinth trees of Morah. So Abraham would have camped here. God appears to Abraham in Genesis 18 at this spot. Then Jacob is at this spot when he is splitting his armies. Gideon, this is the spot where he would have been hanging out when God first talked to him. Deborah was hanging out by the terebinth trees of Morah when God first talked to her. 
And so this idea that God interacts with humanity at this particular location is really getting baked in. So this becomes a location where we have this idea that God interacts and God makes things happen in his kingdom. So verse 10. I didn't even get to that. I want to have that. Don't miss the fact that Absalom is hanging between heaven and earth. I think that's a really interesting image. He's not quite accepted by the heavens. And because of his pride, the earth, he's above the earth. He's too good for this planet. And he's not good enough for heaven. And you see this image of pride hanging between the two. And I think that's really interesting. Absalom can't enjoy earth because he's too good for it. And he can't enjoy heaven because he's not welcome there either. And that's kind of where pride leaves people sometimes. It's just a thought or an image that goes with that. Uh, Verse 10. Now a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. (laughs) Hey, guess what I just saw? So Joab said to the man who told him, You just saw him? Why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver on my hand... I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Beware lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise, I would have dealt um, falsely against my own life. For there's nothing hidden from the king, and you yourself would have set yourself against me. In other words, this nameless soldier says, Are you nuts? I'm not touching Absalom. I kill him, and you guys are then taking it out on me, and you look really good with David. Or David takes it out on me, and I get to, either way, I'm a dead man if I touch that guy. So he heard David as he's walking out the gate, and he doesn't do it. Regardless of the perceived rank of this person, he's recognizing that his king is David, not Joab, not Abishai, not Ittai the Gittite. So they offer benefits to him. A sash there, or a belt, uh, is a military honor that has continued through the 1800s. A soldier that had a great commendation in a battle would get a sash that they'd get to wear around. And wherever they walked, people would see them with this sash and see them as a decorated warrior of sorts. But there's nothing honorable about killing a guy hanging from the tree by his hair. Like, that's not something that you should be decorated for. So this is his response, no thanks. I'm going to stick with what my king told me to do. And frankly, that's the response that Christians should have when we're told to do things that are against the word of God. Even by people in the church, when they say do this or do that, it's a great response to say, no thanks, I'm going to stick with what Jesus says. So I'm not going to do that thing you're asking me to do because it's against the word of God. And that's essentially what this soldier does. Then Joab says, I can't linger with you. I don't have time for you. I can't linger with you. And he took three spears in his hand and he thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. So he goes up and he kills him. The word spear there might be in your Bible, it might be darts or something, but essentially he's taking a weapon and he's putting it through Absalom's heart. Once doesn't do, he puts three of them there. Uh, No hesitation, like that's I think what we pull out of this with Joab. Joab's a killer. He's a soldier, he's a warrior, and he ends Absalom um, with a kind of moral clarity that's really interesting. But that moral clarity leads him to kill a helpless man in a tree even though the king said to show this person mercy. So, it, you know, this is, again, one of those questions that rabbis would, was, Ab, was Joab right to kill Absalom or was he wrong to kill Absalom? And it's one of those questions that get laid out there. 
Absalom saying, I can't linger with you. In the Hebrew, that's yachal. It means to hope or to tarry with someone, to lay up hope for things. So basically, you could also translate that, there's no hope for you, buddy, right? You're a lost soul, and I'm not going to spend time with you anymore. So was Joab right to do that? Absalom's a villain. He's treacherous. Absalom's a rapist. He's a thief. He's, he presumes the kingship when he's not anointed for it. Um, and, and, he, and they were told, on the other hand, they were told to deal gently with Absalom, which in this case would be to cut his hair, get him out of the tree, bring him back in shackles, without his hair maybe. Um, but maybe Joab translated deal gently with a quick death, a quick and painless death. That's how, in Joab's head, he interpreted the command, right? So maybe he was right. If he was wrong... Uh, this was a pretty cowardly based thing to do. And so you get this kind of moral conundrum. The histories are filled with these. What, what does the law say is right and wrong in each of these situations? So we can say that what he did to Absalom to kill a traitor is actually what the law says to do with traitors. You're supposed to kill them. So if you're going back to the law, Joab followed the law in justice, but he was not obedient to the king. And sometimes Christians can be just in how we administer the law that we are following in Christ, but we cannot be obedient to mercy when we deal with other people or when we deal with rebellious people. So being just and being obedient are always the same thing. So God, and here's one way to look at that. In Joab killing Absalom, he's not trusting that God will deal with Absalom. So if there's wild beasts in the wilderness killing all these people, it could have just left Absalom there and God may have used beasts to take him out. So Joab, in taking action himself to slay somebody, isn't really inviting people into repentance. You know, and the foolish son Absalom never gets the chance to repent and be wise because Joab ends that opportunity. Verse 15, And ten young men who bear Joab's armor, his armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck and killed him. Essentially, Joab and his men, with what they think is moral clarity, but defiance to David, go out and do what they think is right under the law without listening to their king. So Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing Israel. Again, this is part of the law too. When a battle is won, Jewish people weren't supposed to just continue slaughtering. When it was over, they stopped killing because the battle's over. So when Absalom dies, he blows the trumpet. The people come back. They stop pursuing. For Joab held back the people. He restrains them from slaughter. And they took Absalom and they cast him into a large pit in the woods. And they laid a very large heap of stones over him. And then all of Israel fled, everyone to his tent. Back in Joshua 7 and 8, we see that when they buried Achan, each soldier in the army would put a stone on the mound. So when they say a large pile of stones, likely the entire army of David's men came and put a stone on Absalom's tomb and made a big pile and stacked it there. So this very large heap of stones over the top of him would be a place where they would uh, leave him and bury him. So everyone goes back to his tent. We've seen that before. That's a phrase that basically means the battle's over and everybody goes home. So they have kind of a Minuteman-style militia and when battles are finished, you go back to whatever you were doing before the battle. Verse 18, Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name. And to this day it is called Absalom's monument. That's an interesting little addition, right? 
So what the Bible's saying here is he was buried out in the mountains of Ephraim under a heap of stones. But that thing you see outside Jerusalem, the King's Valley is like the Kidron Valley right outside Jerusalem, right? Because Jerusalem's the king's city. In that valley, there is to this day a big monument called Absalom's tomb. And what the Bible's claiming in verse 18 is his body's not actually in the tomb, but that's the pillar he built for himself that people are now calling his tomb, and they're clarifying that that's Absalom's monument, verse 18, but it's not where he was buried. So if you take a tour of Israel and they'll say, oh, that's Absalom's tomb. It's not actually, there's no claim that, that, that he's buried there, but it is that thing he built. So um, Absalom says he has no sons, which seems odd, because he has three sons listed. So that does, there's a few things where you have to deal with that. One is he might have said, I have no sons when he built the tower, which might have been before he gave birth to sons or his, or his wife gave birth to sons. It could be that those three sons died young because there's no mention of them going forward. So it could be all of Absalom's sons were killed, maybe in this very battle. Or three, Absalom's sons were, not, were excused from the family. So they were kind of de, de uh, what would you call it? Not given inheritance of Absalom after this fact. Disowned, that's the word, thank you. So then David hears about it. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, let me run now. Remember, Zadok was a priest, so Ahimaaz is one of the priests. Says, let me run and take the news to the king, how the Lord has avenged him of his enemies. And Joab says to him, you shall not take the news this day, for you shall take the news another day. But today you shall take no news. I like how he just says that in three different ways. Because of the king's son is dead. I think Joab's trying to save Ahimaaz from being the bearer of bad news. We've seen a couple other occasions where people brought news to David and they thought it was good news. And David reacted very opposite. Like he didn't receive that as good news. And I think Joab's trying to save face for Ahimaaz here. Really interesting image of what the church looks like when you get that new believer that's super excited to take things on and, that, and you kind of back them off and say, just relax, you will get there, that will happen at some point, but let's like, let things play out a little bit first. Um, and then Joab says to the Cushite, uh, Cush is south of Egypt, so deep into Africa on the upper Nile. Go tell the king what you've seen. So the Cushite bowed himself to Joab and ran. Joab stops Ahimaaz from bringing the message, and he grabs a nameless Cushite to go do the job for him. This is an interesting move. Joab's a really curious character in the Bible because every situation Joab's in is one of these kind of like, okay, what's he doing here, and why is he doing this? And it's hard to understand Joab's personality. In this sense, perhaps Joab didn't want Ahimaaz to get the credit. Maybe. Bible doesn't say. Perhaps he's trying to save Ahimaaz from David's anger or wrath. Maybe it doesn't say. It's not clear. Verse 20 has two words that are getting used for news. So the first use of the word news is in the Hebrew means good tidings or happy news, like the gospel, great news to share. The second use of the, the word news means tidings, which could have a neutral or negative connotation to it. But they're two completely different Hebrew words. So the good tidings this day, for you shall take the tidings another day. And it's basically saying you don't get to bring the, what you are calling good news today. You're going to get to bring news at another time. So what they think is good news, Joab's really aware that they just killed the son and they were told not to. 
So I think he's setting that up. Verse 22, And Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, But whatever happens, please let me run after the Cushite. Ahimaaz isn't hearing the counsel of his veteran elder, who's trying to maybe keep him out of trouble. Like, he's really anxious to do something. But at this point, the Cushite's already taken off. So Joab says, why will you run, my son? Again, uh, veteran to younger, the, my son there implies like a, a status difference. Since you have no news ready, why do you need to run after the Cushite? You're not adding anything to what the Cushite is doing. Well, I want to help with that. I want to do this. Why? So-and-so's already got it. Why do you need to be getting the attention so badly? So whatever happens, verse 23, he said, let me run. So he said, run then. And I just know this feeling. You got somebody that's like, let me do this, let me do this. I don't think that's a good idea, gently. Let me do this, let me do this. I really don't think that's a good idea. Oh, let me do this, let me do this. All right, <laughs> you know, if you really need to do it, go ahead and do it. So you get this sense that Ahimaaz is just anxious to do this. But whatever happens, let me run. So he said, run then. Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plane and outran the Cushite. He's a f so what we know about Ahimaaz is he's speedy like a puma. So he runs, he persists despite the counsel of Joab. He's really anxious to run, but he doesn't have a new message. Maybe Ahimez wants to get the credit for this. So he runs out in front. Now David was sitting between the two gates. Okay, good for David. He's sitting where he was supposed to be sitting, right? He's learned from last time. We don't see David making the same mistakes. We see David growing progressively throughout all these accounts. So he's sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof over the gate to the wall, lifted his eyes and looked, and there was a man running alone. And then the watchman cried out and told the king, oh, I see a man running alone. And the king said, if he's alone, there is news in his mouth. Okay, if many soldiers come running back over the hill, they just got routed. But if he's running alone, it's probably good news because... There isn't, like, all of our people aren't running back all scraggly. So if he's alone, there's news in his mouth, and he came rapidly and drew near. Then the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, there is another man running alone. It's like a Monty Python skit. <laughs> and then the king said, he also brings news. So the king is pretty insightful here. There's a messenger coming. He must be a messenger. And then he says again, there's another man coming. Oh, he must be a messenger too. So the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz. So Ahimaaz was famous for his running speed, like Tom Cruise. So the son of Zadok, and the king said, he's a good man. He comes with good news. I like that about Ahimaaz, that just seeing the person, you know they're coming with good news. Like when Paul comes up with something to say, you know it's going to be something good because Paul's a good man. There's other people, we will not mention names, that when they come walking up to you with something to say, there's a little part of you that kind of goes, oh, here we go. And that has to do with the person's character. So Ahima's anxiousness isn't a sin. His ambitiousness, he wants to be first. That's all, that enthusiasm is awesome and it's wonderful. But he comes with no new news, right? So he's He's not adding a lot of value, to the, and that's what we're going to see here in the next verses. This is true today, too. The character of a person establishes the kind of colors they're going to bring to the table. And you tend to get out of people what's coming out of their heart, right? The abundance of the heart proceeds from the mouth. 
So moral good leads to a morally good witness. Moral selfishness tends to lead to a divisive witness. And it's just kind of true of humans. So verse 28, put, put that wisdom in our pocket, moving on to 28. So Ahimez called out and said to the king, all is well. <laughs> then he bowed down with his face to the earth before the king and he said, blessed be the Lord your God who's delivered up the men who raised their hand against Lord my king. He gets to be the one to say that they won. The battle is won. That's the priestly message. The king says, is the young man Absalom safe? And Ahimez answered, there's something in the tone of how David asked that question that Ahimez realizes maybe he doesn't need to share that news. So he says, when Joab sent out the king's servant and me your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was about. That's a lie. He does kind of know what happened there. So he's anxious to tell about the victory. He's not anxious to tell about the hard to tell parts. And I think this is very true of kind of in overly enthusiastic people. Sometimes when you deal with the messiness of people's lives, you got to speak truth into their life that's not easy to hear. Because that's how they're going to get through the mess. If you want to get through the mess, you need to do this or that. So he wants to be a messenger for the king, but he's not ready to give the news both good and bad. He loves telling the good stuff, but he struggles telling the bad stuff. So he's a lukewarm witness. He's not ready to do the whole job. He actually didn't see it happen, but he's running and he's so anxious to be there. But at the end of the day, he has nothing to share because he didn't see anything. If you haven't witnessed growth in your own life, how do you share the growth in your life with other people? So it becomes this, the same mistake of, I want to run, I want to serve. And the veteran Joab tries to back him down from that kind of over-anxiousness, going out too soon, not having anything to share. And then you find yourself in the situation, you don't have much to offer. So that's why people need to soak in God's word sometimes. Even Jesus' disciples got to walk with Jesus for three years, right, before they were ready to go out and do that ministry. So, you know, oftentimes, some of you have heard me say this, just sit and be blessed. Like, come in and hang out with other believers and find needs in the body and just start helping out and serving and helping with cleanup or bringing some awesome treats and like, just be blessed for a while and relax. And God will give you the calling and he'll give you opportunities to be a witness, but wait until you've got things to share that just kind of naturally come out of living a life with the Lord and with the Lord's people. So he's a really great runner, but he's a terrible messenger. That's just a, not a good combo. So he needs to work on getting his message first. When David asks, is the young man Absalom safe? He's more interested in his son than he is about the battle. That's an interesting perspective. Verse 30, and the king says, turn aside and stand here. In other words, shut up and stand over there because the second runner is coming. And because he had nothing to share, he got dismissed. Uh, interesting images. So he turned aside and stood still. Just then the Cushite came and the Cushite said, there's good news, my lord, the king. For the Lord has avenged you this day and all of those who rose against you. So the king said to the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? Exact same question. Now we get to see why Joab sent the Cushite. Because listen to how the Cushite answers this. So the Cushite answered, May the enemies of the Lord, the king, and all those who rise against you to do harm be like that young man. He doesn't even call him Absalom, just that young man. So he distances him from David. Very tactful way of sharing this news. He tells him the truth. That <laughs> that traitor got what was coming to him. So we're... 
what you could say Ahimez brought the priestly news, you've won the war, and the Kushite brings the military or the civic news, right? There was treason, and the treason's been dealt with. So it's tactful, it's carefully spoken, it's not harsh, but it's true. Like he doesn't lie here, he tells the truth, and he provides perspective along with the truth. This is called tact. It's being artful when you give a witness, being thoughtful when you share something with somebody. The point of sharing news isn't to beat them over the head with it. It's to give it to people in such a way that they can receive it and hear it and understand what's coming at them. And David understands, verse 33, then the king was deeply moved and he went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept like his son just died. And as he went, he said thus, oh my Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place, O oh Absalom, my son, my son. So he goes into mourning. He's deeply moved in the Hebrew. That, that moving there that we translate in the English, it's a literal moving. So he's mourning to the point where he's shaking. I don't know if you've seen that happen before. But it, he's, the word there is to tremble or to move. Um, I think David is both mourning Absalom's death, but there's a part of him that understands that this whole series of events was triggered when he had adultery with Bathsheba, that he's responsible for this whole series of events, that his sin has caused division in the nation. His permissiveness with his children has caused spoiled children that do horrible things, and that he's ultimately responsible for these things. And he knows that God has been a part of setting these things in motion, that this is a consequence for what he did. So taking Leadership for granted is one of the things that he still hasn't dealt with because as we go on with the verses, he has to get corrected. So the sins of the father become the sins of the son. And as David watches his son make some of these mistakes, it's just like a mirror being held up to himself. He's just seeing all of his own mistakes in his son. That's tough to see that happen. So the repetition here, he says, my son, five times. There's a cumulative story going on here. And he's watching his 30 years of kingship kind of fall apart and losing son after son. He lost the infant son of Bathsheba. He's lost his firstborn, uh, oh my goodness, what's the name? Ab, starts with an A, five letters. Abdon. He lost Abdon, thank you. Um, and now he's lost Absalom, so that's three of his sons that he's lost. And then he puts in there, if only I died in your place. Which... First of all, that's in the middle of things on either side of it. And that's a chiastic form. And I think the Holy Spirit's speaking through here because there's this idea that a loving father would rather die in the place of the son who deserves it. And you see these images come through David's life and through his psalms all over the place. The heart of God is he would rather die, he himself would rather die than to see you and me get punished for what we deserve to get punished for and that's the heart of a loving father. I'd rather it was on me than on my, on my kid. So he watches this happen. He mourns. It's going to be the end of the chapter. This kind of mourning is accepted healthy, and God can even work through this kind of mourning. David's heart is breaking, so he's ready to serve the Lord again. Absalom's lost in sin. He's an enemy, yet God loves him. And you get this image of that God loves us even though we're first his enemy. Absalom's hanging on a tree between heaven and earth, the son of the king, and yet God still loves him, hanging on that tree, having to take the punishment for sin that David feels like he deserves. Right? You see in the images? Absalom's 
brutally surrounded by, the, by his enemies. He's beaten. He's pierced three times right in the heart. Jesus gets pierced in two hands and one nail through the feet. Three piercings. Absalom dies for his sins justly, but, the, but he's defiant in that sense where Jesus is not defiant. So there we don't have a mirror. So again, you can't build all of your theology off these images, but the fact that God's planting these images in the Old Testament all the way through the Old Testament, when Jesus dies on a cross, you can go back to the Old Testament and read it with that full revelation. So we too have a comeuppance coming, just like Absalom did. We too have a king that wants to not see that justice administered. He's doing everything he can do to bring salvation. And the enemy catches up with Absalom before Absalom ever has a chance to repent. We too can have the enemy catch up to us before we have a chance to repent. So therefore, if you haven't repented, like today's a good night to do that before the enemy catches up with you, right? So praise God, he's already hung on the tree for us. We don't need to take that punishment because God, he himself was able to take the punishment on himself versus watching his children take it. He dies for our sins. Next chapter, Samuel 19. And Joab was told, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day has turned into mourning for all people. It's the opposite of what happened with Jesus. With Jesus, the, the mourning turned into victory. But in this situation, the opposite is happening. The victory is turning into mourning. That's not good. For the people heard it, and they said that day, the king is grieved for his son, and the people stole back into the city that day as the people who are ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. But the king covered his face, and the king cried out with a loud voice, O my Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. This time there's no wish to die in his place. It's just kind of going on. And the result of David's mourning too much is that it causes an effect on the people like who just risked their lives for David. But it seems like, well, do you not appreciate that we just saved your kingdom? Like, so they're coming back from battle, and instead of having victory, they're having mourning. That's the opposite for us as believers. Instead of mourning our own punishment, we can celebrate the victory of salvation. So there's kind of a, a reverse image here. So we aren't told how long this goes on, but at least we're talking about the return to Jerusalem here, right? So they're going back into the city, and David's still blubbering about his, his lost son. So you've got this kind of, I think the technical term is caterwauling, right? Where you just mourn and mourn and mourn. Jewish tradition kind of ends this, and they have a period of mourning that was allowed. So you would kind of uh, sit shiva with the family that was mourning, and that would go on for, is it seven days? We don't know. So there's a set amount of time you would sit shiva, and all the family and friends would come and hang out. But when Shiva was over, the mourning was over. And that partially comes out because of this text. So this idea that we're not going to mourn forever, it's what's called excessive mourning. First uh, Thessalonians 4.13, I would not have you be ignorant, brothers, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For people that don't believe in God, death is the worst thing that can happen. For people who do believe in God, Death is not so horrible. It's a curse, but it's a curse we go through, right? So it, there's this just idea that David's feelings have overcome his reason. And in that, he's not serving his people at all. He's actually hurting people because he's, he's overwhelmed with feelings and he's lacking his senses. So he has a good friend that comes in. And again, here's Joab as like the voice of reason. 
So Joab keeps flipping on, as, on all these things. Then Joab came into the house of the king and says, Today you've disgraced all your servants who today have saved your life, the lives of the sons and daughters, the lives of your wives, the lives of your concubines, in that you love your enemies and you hate your friends. For you've declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, it would have pleased you. What do you think, David? Are you more happy that you won the battle? You're more upset about winning a battle? Right? So maybe everyone who was loyal to you dies. And would that make you happy? Like this is, this is called a rebuke, right? Knock it off, David. It's not all about you. You're being selfish in your mourning for yourself. God's blessing you over and over and over, you idiot. Wake up and see it. You are not helpless. You've been given loyal people that have stuck with you. You need to take care of those people. In other words, if David's going to be a leader and a king, he needs to take his self-pity and bury it. Get over it. So in chapter 18, you saw kind of a mourning period, which is acceptable. In chapter 19, the impression is the mourning just keeps going and going and going, and he needs to move on. Selfish people rarely believe that they're selfish people. And in the body of Christ, when selfishness happens... We often need to have brothers and sisters who love us enough to say you're being selfish, knock it off. And that's not easy to say, but only if we love each other do we say that to each other. And it can be said in a little nicer than Joab says it, but I, Joab has to say it in such a way that he snaps David out of it. So the nation needs a guy like Joab right now to get their king back. So neither princes nor servants... In other words, he's regarding these people as worthless, and David's not weighing in the value of his servants when he does his mourning, and he's weighing Absalom heavier than he should. Verse 7, Now therefore arise, go out, and speak, and speak comfort to your servants. It's time as a believer that we stop thinking about ourselves and we start thinking about everybody else in our life and start speaking words of comfort into their lives. God loves you. He's got a plan for you. And, you know, you may have all sorts of ailments and worries and troubles, but there are times where we, we worry about those things and we give them to the Lord and we pray about them. And there's times when we go about the business of helping other people. We think of others, not ourselves. So David's depression gets handled here, actually. Absalom says, for I swear by the Lord, like, like here he's really laying it down. I swear by the Lord, if you don't go out, not one will stay with you this night, and that will be worse for you than all the evil that's befallen you from your youth until now. You know what, David? Yes, you've had some troubles, and the Lord has brought consequences into your life. But those consequences get even worse if you start in on the self-pity stuff. Get over it. Move on. What a... This is just such a... Like, this is a robust passage for human psychology. Right? This is such a... It's a difficult text... But this idea of you have to put others over yourself comes out loud and clear from the mouth of Joab. Really, ministry only begins for believers when we start to put other people in front of ourselves, And we start to say, you know what? The other people in my life matter more than me. You feel bad about things? Go serve other people. Take care of folks. Minister. Go on a missions trip. You know, live without air conditioning for a couple weeks and see how that goes deep distress helps us wake up. I was talking with Trevor Rubenstein at the baptism, and he was saying, I think sometimes suffering is better for our spiritual self than health and comfort. And that idea of just 
Sometimes it's okay for us to struggle a little bit so that we can be a, a minister to other people and appreciate the comforts that we do have. It's an interesting thing, that idea that not one will stay with you. The problem with despair is it only gets worse. If you're a miserable person to be around, it makes a lot of sense that people don't want to be around you. Like if all that comes out of your mouth is despair and worry and self-pity, people kind of go and hang around with other people and then it gets even lonelier and even worse and it's this horrible cycle that people can get caught in. Well, David's caught in that cycle. People don't necessarily hang out with selfish people. So stop doing this. And he says, by the Lord, like he's, that's not a small thing for Jewish people to swear by the name of the Lord because then that becomes a vow and the law says that if you break a vow, that's, that's breaking the law of God. So when Joab throws out the by the Lord phrase, we should realize how serious this is. David, if you don't stop it, we're all going to leave you. You will have no one. And that will be worse. Worse for you than all the evil that's befalling you. So don't make your own troubles worse by being in self-pity. Right? He needs to go read the book of Job. <laughs> like, and really study the book of Job. David, it's time to wake up. You're all done with this. So basically, you don't have to be happy, David, but you need to get up and do your job. And you don't have to, you, you, you don't have to stop feeling sorry for yourself, but you need to start feeling for the people around you also. So to rejoice is to choose to be joyful even though maybe you don't feel that way. Otherwise, you're just joyful. But to be rejoicing means you choose to be a joyful person despite feelings. And you start using your head. So Joab steps up to David and says, knock it off. Get your butt out to the gate and do your job. Verse 8, then the king arose and sat in the gate. I like the simple resolution. The solution to despair is often that simple. We talk to folks that often are really struggling in life, and we just say, well, where are you fellowshipping? And well, I haven't gone to church in a long time. Okay, solution number one, get out of bed and go to church on Sunday. And go be with believers and start serving and ministering to people. And they told all the people saying, there's the king sitting in the gate. Everybody notices. Hey, they showed up. So the, all the people came before the king, for everyone of Israel had fled to his tent. Good job, Joab. He got David back. So David's recovery is still taking place. And he's still getting on point. And for the full narrative, the idea that sometimes recovery and renewal requires good friends to step in and give good advice. So at the beginning of the last chapter, the people advised David to do things a little differently, and he took the advice. There's a humility there. Now we got Joab coming in and rebuking David, and David hears the rebuke, and he responds to it. And in the body of Christ, we call this iron sharpening iron. Like that we help each other be better because of how we do things. So this is a turning point, a huge turning point. And it's so easy. The turning point is, then the king arose and sat in the gate. And they told all the people, saying, there is the king sitting in the gate. That's the turning point for David. He's back in the gate. Now all the people were in a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king saved us from the hand of our enemies. He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he's fled from the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? So there's still a large contingent of the people of Israel that are having this kind of situation with, well, they sided with Absalom, but now what's going to happen to them? So we have kind of this resolution or reuniting of the nation. And this is kind of cool. 
So King David sent to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, saying, Speak to the elders of Judah, saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house, since the words of all Israel have come to the king to this very house? David chooses a mediator. There's this deep conflict with these people, and isn't it kind of wise that David chooses the priests to go and help resolve things? Because if he went straight to them, that might actually be more of a civil war. So he sends the priests. You're my brethren. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then are you the last to bring back the king? David artfully says, you're my family. So he's showing them that he's not showing them any hard feelings. Then verse 13 you, and say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? Remember Amasa was Absalom's general who seemed to have survived the battle. God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of the army before me continually in the place of Joab. So he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah just as the heart of one man. So they sent this word to the king, return you and all your servants. David is showing amazingly astute diplomacy with his former enemies. Instead of going and crushing them all, he invites them back into the family. And then by giving Amasa, the general of the other army, a role in his administration, he's starting to show some compromising ability. Early US presidents would often do this. The losing political party would get positions in the administration because the idea is you bring in wisdom when you bring in the other side. Maybe he needs the voice of Amasa to get a critic that's gonna balance out his leadership that caused problems last time. So he brings in people that have been his enemies and he, and he established them and puts them there. It sways the hearts of the people. They realize David isn't out to get us and he's willing to forgive. Then the king returned and came to the Jordan. So, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to escort the king across the Jordan. So the city they went into a few verses ago would have been that city they were staying in east of the Jordan. And now David's starting to make his way back to Jerusalem. The king returning came to the Jordan. So he's up to that river. This is that same place, Gilgal. It's been popped up a few times in the word. And essentially, this is the return of the king. He's making his way back to the kingdom. Uh, he's been away fighting false kings, and now he shows up. So they are unanimously bringing him back. The people of Judah are David's own tribe. They were also Absalom's tribe. So the first reuniting is to get his own tribe back together. And they show up and they meet him there. Uh, Judah's where we get the word Jewish. So the Jews are the first to welcome the king. And then the rest of Israel comes to welcome the king. Uh, just like Jesus went first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. God never forces salvation on the people. So David comes up to the river and he's waiting for people to accept him. Uh, perhaps Jesus is likely waiting for the return of the church until the gospel message comes into its fullness with the Jewish people. That would seem like a consistent pattern with God. This is why we are excited about what's happening in Israel right now. I was just talking, uh, looking at Pew Research the other day, and as of right now, we see something in, in world history that's never happened before. That as Gentile Christians decrease in faith, Jewish Christians are increasing in faith. It's never happened before. And in America right now, one in every five Jewish people call themselves a Messianic Jew. There is a mass, massive coming to Christ and openness to Christ happening amongst the Jewish people as we speak. And it's really only been in the last 10 years. 
and I guess the last two years has seen another huge uptick. So Jewish ministries right now, again, I was talking to Trevor yesterday, he's saying they've never seen the kind of openness in traffic. They have synagogue after synagogue asking Messianic Jews to come in and tell them about Jesus. It's amazing what's going on. Yet that doesn't make the news at all. So he leaves, the king leaves rejected, and he's coming back with people cheering him on. He leaves with the Jews rejecting him. He returns with the Jews accepting him. You see the pattern? Right? It's just awesome. So a huge parallel to the flight in chapter 16 and 17, where you had Ittai, Zadok, and Hushai, three supporters. And now we have three people that he needs to settle things with. He needs to reward people that blessed him, and he needs to reconcile with people that cursed him. So how is Jesus going to return? You get three different images of how Jesus deals with people. The first one is Shimei. Whatever the king does with those who rejected him. Remember Shimei is the, the little old man that threw stones at him and kicked dirt at him as they were leaving Jerusalem. So now they run into Shimei. Actually, Shimei runs in. He comes running to him. So you got this dirty, rotten, nasty person coming in total repentance to the king. Like, please let me make this right. What a beautiful, like, we should think of ourselves as sinners that come to the king saying, please forgive me. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, who was from Baruam, hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet the King David. Hurried is in there, like adds a, a tone to that sentence. He's, he absolutely just charges to go to David. There were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, and Ziba, who we'll come back to, the servant of the house of Saul, and his 15 sons and his 20 servants with him, and they went over the Jordan before the king. They didn't even wait for the king to cross the Jordan. They go charging into the river, and they go meet him on the other side. Then a ferry boat went across to carry over the king's household and to do what he thought good. Now Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king when he had crossed the Jordan. Okay, humility is a really good start to reconciling with your king. Start with humility. And then he said to the king, Don't let my lord impute iniquity to me or remember what wrong your servant did on this day that my lord the king left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. Please forgive me of my sins. There's no denial of sins. There's no excuses for sins. It's I have sinned. Oh, that's the next sentence. Verse 20. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Very clear expression of I've sinned. Therefore, here I am, the first to come today of all the house of Joseph to go down and meet my Lord the King. I'm the first here because I'm the first sinner. Sounds like Paul, right? I'm the chief of all sinners. I need more forgiveness than everybody else. And that's genuine and humble. And Shimei is giving these words to the king. You could argue Shimei is just being self-serving. He realizes that when David comes back, he's in trouble. Um, and maybe this is just a convenient way to do it. I think when you get the words like he hurried to do this, you'd think if he was guilty, he'd be running away from David. But he doesn't do that. He runs right to David. He's trusting that the king, upon his return, will have mercy for his sins. Why would he think that? Because David has already shown mercy to those that are humble. So the pattern of the king is a reason we trust the king to keep the same pattern. Now that David's won the battle, because he's, his son has fallen, how should he react to these sinners? But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered and said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? Justice demands that Shimei be killed for his treason. You get the sense that David's closest friends are like hardcore on the law. 
But the king is the one that can overrule the law. We as normal humans and messengers, we should be in our own lives, we should try to keep the law. But you get this sense that David, the king, knows when to bring mercy. And he asks us to also have a heart for mercy. And David said, what have I to do with you, sons of Zuriah? In other words, what business is this? You're not the one that makes this decision. I'm the one that makes this decision. That you should be adversaries with me today? Why would you be against me on this? Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? For, I, for do I not know that I today am the king over Israel? Like, will I be more of a king if this guy dies? I'm the king. He's lost. It's over. Therefore, the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king swore to him, I forgive you. I love that God is just that simple. Like a four-year-old can understand that. Lord, I've sinned. And the Lord says, I forgive you. And that when the right heart is there and the Lord knows our hearts, that happens. Here's what's interesting. In verse 22, where it says adversaries, if you look that up in Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word Satan. So when it says that, it would, it would read that you should be Satan to me today. Remember when Jesus is talking to Peter and Peter tells him not to go to the cross and he says, get behind me, Satan? The king is doing something very similar here to what Jesus the king does with Peter. It's not that Abishai is a bad person and he's actually advocating for the law here. And it's not a bad thing when Peter says, don't go to the cross, you don't have to do this, Jesus, don't do this. Right? But in the flesh and not in the spirit, we're acting without thinking, we're acting without going to our Lord. So David literally is saying, why are you trying to be Satan with me right now when I'm trying to do the mercy of God? I'm trying to do a good thing. So some of us, a lot of us are like Shimei. Maybe there's a season in our life where we hated God. We cursed the king. We spat and threw stones at the, at the crucifixion of Jesus. Like we wanted nothing to do with Jesus. But praise God that we have a king that desires mercy and not sacrifice, Hosea 6.6. 6. He wants the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Matthew 9.13, go and learn what this means. I will have mercy, not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The heart of our God is to bring these people back into the kingdom, to renew and restore. And David sets that image up so that this shouldn't be foreign when Jesus comes. Then you get Mephibosheth, our second image. Y'all still with me? We good? I know this is a long one tonight, but we're getting two chapters under our belts. Now Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and he had not cared for his feet. <laughs> now, when you wear sandals everywhere and you don't care for your feet, things get stanky. So he probably smelled Mephibosheth before he actually shows up. He had not trimmed his mustache nor washed his clothes, and from the day the king departed until the day he returned in peace, so it was when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? I'm sure David felt betrayed. This is a guy that sat at his table with him. Why'd you bail on me? You know, Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Peter says, I, you know I love you, Lord. And he says, then feed my sheep. Right? This restoration process is just beautiful. So he's got this, the bad physical appearance, and the question is, why didn't you go with me? And he answered, my Lord, O king, my servant deceived me. That's Ziba from back in verse 17. Ziba's standing probably in the courtyard when this happens. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I might ride on it and go to the king because your servant is lame and he slandered your servant, my Lord, the king. But my Lord, the king is like an angel of God. Therefore, do what's good in your eyes. I wanted to go with you, but my servant bailed on me and took my donkey and I can't follow because I'm lame. 
So Mephibosheth gives his reasons for not coming, but Mephibosheth hasn't done anything wrong. It just appears like he bailed on David, but he didn't try to. And he points out Ziba by name and calls him a deceiver and a liar. For all my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king. You set your servant among those who eat at your own table. Therefore, what right have I to, to cry out to the king anymore? He appreciates his life. He appreciates what God did for him. And just because he didn't join the king right away doesn't mean he doesn't love the king. Honestly, Mephibosheth stands out as an image of the Jewish people. Right, who didn't immediately embrace Jesus, all of them, but on the return of Jesus, they're going to recognize what happened and how they were deceived. And there's going to be a certain number of them that bring it right back. So the king says to him, why do you speak to me any more of your matters? Have I said you and Ziba divide the land? And then Mephibosheth said to the king, rather let him take it all, inasmuch as my lord, the king has come back in peace to his own house. You know what? We don't need any of the trappings. This is really neat. In instances where it's one person's word against another, Solomon does the same thing with the woman, two women who come and they're arguing over the baby. And Solomon says, split the baby in half and you can both have half of it. That's kind of tradition with the Jewish people. When you have one person's word against another, you take whatever's disputed and you split it in half and give half to each. So David's following judicial tradition with that. And you often find when people love that thing that's being split, that they'll relent of having it split because the splitting is worse than who owns it. And so one of the women says, no, 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 let her keep the baby. She just doesn't want the baby to die. And Mephibosheth does the exact same thing here. Keep that parcel of land together. It's a beautiful piece of land. No need to split it up. Give it all to Ziba. If I can come sit at your table, that's all I want. And honestly, what a beautiful image of being restored to the king, right? We didn't, never really left the law, never really left following Yahweh, but recognizing that the king has returned and that David's there and having wanted to follow the Lord the whole way, now they realize that David's back and they get to follow the Lord and they don't need any of the trappings that were given to them under the old regime. That as the second term of David starts, they just want to sit at the table with David. Just let me come into my Messiah's presence. It's a beautiful image. So this path means, frankly, there's great wisdom here too. Ziba's not going to rebel again. Because he got everything he wanted. So Ziba's been satisfied, so to speak, and Mephibosheth can part ways with Ziba and no longer be in the same household. Because Mephibosheth was totally betrayed by Ziba. Why would you put them in the same household again? So he's like, nope, Ziba can have all of it. Just let me part ways with this guy. Right? So 1 Kings 3 is where that story with Solomon is. Let him take it all. And he gets it. How glorious that Mephibosheth lets it go. He lets go and he lets God. The ability of a believer or a new believer to just let go those things from your old life and commit yourself to being at the table with the king. Uh, this is a noble guy, Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, another noble person. So a noble person, you can see that honor coming right through Jonathan's line. Then we get Barzillai. Barzillai is one of the three that provided food for David back in chapter 16, east of the Jordan. So he's just somebody that really blessed David when he was in his deepest need. So this is Barzillai, somebody who stayed with David even when David was down and out, right? So Barzillai the Gileadite came down from Rogalim and went across the Jordan with the king to escort him across the Jordan. He's been with David the whole time. 
Now Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old, and he had provided the king with supplies while he stayed in Mahanaim. And he was a very rich man. And then the king said to Barzillai, Come across with me and I will provide for you while you're with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How long have I to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? <laughs> I'm an old codger. I don't need to make that trip, right? I am today 80 years old. Can I discern between good and bad? Can your servant taste what I eat or drink? Can I hear any longer the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be a further burden to the Lord the king? Your servant will go a little way across the Jordan with the king. And why should the king repay me with such a reward? But let your servant turn back again that I might die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother. But here is your servant Chimim. Let him cross over with my lord the king and do for him what seems good to you. And the king answered, Chinnam shall cross over with me and I will do for him what seems good to you. Now whatever you request of me, I will do for you. And then all the people went over the Jordan and the king crossed over and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him and he returned to his own place. Goodwill. So it's interesting that, I don't know, I think we get this image of generosity here. Barzillai is, you think when people give things to a king, like David's got to have his whole life filled with people that give him gifts because they want something in return, right? It's a trade. And so he's met this very precious soul that gives and gives and gives of his own household. He's generous. He provides to David when he needs it. He did to the least of these. And David's like, man, you can sit at my table. You, like he just wants Barzillai to come and be in his household with him. Like for a king to have somebody that doesn't want something in return, that's a precious person to have around. So he's, Barzillai, why don't you come be on my council? Come hang out with me. And then that response from Barzillai, why should the king repay me? I didn't want anything from you. I gave it to you because you were the king. I didn't expect anything in return. This is weird when we deal with human relationships. It's interesting when you give gifts to non-believers they think there's some exchange going on where they owe you something back. I love watching this happen because you just show generosity with people and they keep wanting to like return the generosity because they, they want to balance. And in the kingdom, sometimes we just give because we love people. And it's just that easy. We don't expect anything in return. So you got this Barzillai basically saying, I can't taste, I can't hear, and I'm out of tune, right? I don't even understand if your singers are good or not. I'm not going to enjoy those benefits because I'm content where I'm at. I don't need reward, right? It's interesting. I think sometimes as believers, like when we first get saved, it's because we want the gold streets of heaven. But mature believers, like, that's not why we're saved. We're saved because we love the king. We don't need rewards. Like, it's not a trade like that. We don't get saved so we can get tons of prizes on the other end. And I honestly think for a humble heart, we just want to serve the king because he's good. And because God is good and holy, we serve him because we want to be more like him. So we exhibit that generosity in the same way that David and Jesus exhibited generosity. We just give because it's the right thing to do. So your servant can go a little way. I love this. All Barzillai wants is to just walk with David. And that heart of a believer to say, all I really want is to be with my king. I want to walk with you. I want to spend the short time that I have on this earth walking with Jesus. And man, on the other end, if there's a heaven on the other side, great. But my life is better right now because I have a relationship with the king. It's a beautiful thought. And But here's my servant, Chimim. Like, you know, this could likely be his son. 
Or it could just be a servant that he loves well that he wants to give to the king. I'm going to bring someone up and I'm going to hand that person over to you. Discipleship, right? So 1 Kings 2.7, uh, David uh, leaves this as part of his will. Show kindness to the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite and let him be among those who eat at your table. So they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. In other words, the advice David gives to Solomon is keep this family around. You need honest, good, decent people like this that don't need anything through you. They're already satisfied. And it's wise for you, Solomon, to get this kind of family around you and close to you. Right? Just that idea. Then verse 40, Then the king went on to Gilgal, and Chimim went on with him. And all the people of Judah escorted the king and half of the people of Israel. So we have the return of the king coming back to Jerusalem. It appears to David... Um, that then this Chimim actually lives with him in the kingdom. And we can see that he was actually given property in Jeremiah 41, 17. They departed and dwelt in the habitation of Chimim, which is near Bethlehem, as they went on their way to Egypt. Interesting. You mean the lands around Bethlehem, not a very small little town, gets once again kind of noted, and we get that hint that there's something special about the town of Bethlehem, because this great guy, this Chinnim that comes in, a man of honor, would, had settled on those lands that are outside Bethlehem, where the shepherds saw a star. And this is where we get, again, just this connection to the stories of Jesus. So next, David has to deal. So he's brought back the tribe of Judah, and he's dealt with these people. He's blessed people who needed to be blessed. He's reconciled with people that are repentant. Now he's still got to deal with the other 11 tribes. So this reunification of Israel continues next week, and we will see David exhibiting civic mastery as he does this. Like, honestly, the Lord's just using him to bring Israel back together. So it's good stuff. Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we just love to see the bits of wisdom that are laced throughout your word, the consistency of it. Lord, we love the challenges that you've put before us because you want us to use our mind and sort these things out. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the honesty of the scriptures. Uh, we thank you for the brutal honesty of Joab. We thank you for the example that David sets as he's walking with you. And we thank you especially for the humility of Shimei. We, we thank you for the generosity of Barzil, Barzilia. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for Ahithophel's honesty and recovery, Lord, to um, even though he's lame, uh, that he just honors his king and he loves his king even though he... He physically can't do it in ways that other people can. Well, we just appreciate these stories. Lord, help them, help them to come to mind and be remembrance for us as we go through the week. Lord, may these stories just stick in our hearts. And Lord, may they shape us and mold us to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.